Shepard Maniacs. You're listening to another episode of the Shop Talk Show podcast, all about front end web design and development. I am Dave Autophil Rupert, and with me is Chris 1FR Coyer. Hey, Chris. How are you? <laughs> uh, I'm doing fantastic. We have a, a special guest uh, uh, this week on the show, kind of a, been on the show multiple times. We call a friend of the show, let's say, and one of my favorite people on the internet and real life, Jen Simmons. Hey, Jen, how are you? Hello. I'm very excited to be back. Super excited. Thank you yeah. for having me back. Woo. Oh, it's my pleasure. Jen, you're perfect for the show, of course, because you have long experience with, with, with front-end design and development and, and just are now at Mozilla and affecting the future of browsers and how they work and how the, our fancy world of front-end development works. And uh, most recently had a huge launch with a new kind of a, uh, not kind of, literally, a YouTube channel that... Uh, with a with yourself, but a bunch of other uh, voices and personalities talking and teaching about uh, front end development. So I, I, maybe we'll just start there because people should know about it. I think. Yeah. So yeah, Miriam, Suzanne, Deja Hodge, and myself are making videos. We're like the people on camera writing the content, and then mm-hmm. Jay Deadman, Ryan Hudson are behind the scenes doing producing and editing and making everything happen. What's it called? Um, Does it have a name? Yeah, so if you go to youtube.com slash Mozilla Developer, it's just sort of Mozilla Developers, the kind of overall name of the channel. Um, okay. Yeah, and it's you know it's easiest maybe just to type that in, youtube.com slash Mozilla Developer to get to it. Or you could search. Although, as of last week, because the channel was so new, it wasn't really showing up in search results yet when you search for Mozilla Developer. So you might have to scroll mm-hmm. a bit or like poke around a little bit more. But um. Yeah, it's exciting. It was a long time uh, in planning to really find a way to make the kind of content I was making on the Layout Land YouTube channel, but to make it with more people and to broaden out the topics instead of just talking about graphic design and CSS for layout to talk about all kinds of things from accessibility and dev tools to like, why is the web the way it is? And are we annoyed by that? Should we want to change it? Like... Is it good? How do you make a website work in every browser? Like, what's going on with all this tracking protection stuff? What does that mean for your ad t- sales team? <laughs> yeah, wow. You'd think with so many videos and stuff out there on the web, you'd think, how do, so more, I guess? But you'd think somebody would be doing this, but they're kind of not, at least not to this quality level and with this, I don't know, the same kind of spirit. You know, you're not like trying to train a beginner developer or anything. You're just trying, you just want to like talk about what's going on. Yeah. Thanks. Well, I liked uh, like Miriam's video about uh, (laughs) the weird one and reset. Or weird was also very good. Uh, In list of shame, we haven't had Miriam on the show. I like somebody pointed that out, and we were like, "Are you kidding me?" Like went through all the. (laughs) I was like, "No way!" And so anyway, list of shame. We'll we'll get her on. But the the like. It was like all unset and and just the weirdness of it. And it was like, yeah, that is actually kind of not weird or weird and not how you want it. And then there's like all reset, which showed up. Can we Firefox just steal her thunder? Yeah. I actually like uh, don't totally uh, fully understand it all the way. Should we do like a shop talk show version of that? What is reset or revert? I don't even know. Revert. Yeah, right? it's called revert. Yeah, people should watch the video because I actually, it's funny because, you know, on the one hand, I'm the person who like watches the videos and makes sure that they're cool and approves of them. And on the other hand, I'm like the audience. And I was like, wait, what? Huh? <laughs> what? I watched it like four times and I was like, oh, um, yeah. So there's there's a several different CSS properties that you might think would 
kind of be an undo. Like, I don't know, you have a paragraph style that you set universally. And then for a very specific part, you want to kind of like undo the universal style and kind of go back to the user agent styles, you know, maybe on a particular paragraph, you just kind of want to like, so there's like initial, isn't that initial though, or is it not? Yeah. There's like one called initial and there's one called, I don't know. I don't remember off the top of my head, but like there's three or four different options and she kind of walks through them and shows you like, you you might think that this is going to kind of undo the UA style for paragraph, but it won't. What this Uh. is going to do is it's going to like, for example, the display property she shows where, you know, it's easy enough to use some of those older property or values, their values. It's it's easy to use some of the older values in order to, um, kind of remove color or to remove margin. But like, if you try to say display and you kind of go back with those older values, you actually end up at like, well, what is the original display prop? Like by default display is inline. Yeah, Cause display is terrible. Cause it's overloaded. Right. Cause it also involves none or not. <clears throat> so if it's none, it doesn't know what it was before it was none. So in her video, it's like, she's, she's giving the example of, you might want to basically, What's the default display on paragraph? Well, the default display on paragraph is display block. So how do you get to that? And a lot of the other options would go back to like display inline and stuff. She explains why. Mm. It's hard to explain yeah. on a podcast. But but reset is the newer property that's kind of come out most recently that she explains like, oh, most of the time probably what you want is reset. You say, you know, display reset or display – I'm sorry, revert. See, you got it wrong. Revert. revert. Yeah. Revert. Display revert. Yeah, sorry, I got it wrong and I yeah. – you get it wrong. Revert. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's nerdy. It's like a it's like a high end nerdy thing, you know. That's actually really kind of practical and helpful. Um, that's sort of the idea with the channel is that we're not. Sometimes people get a little confused and they're like, "Oh, you're trying to compete with Lynda.com. It's like, no, 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 no. Like, oh, you're trying to do what MDN Web Docs does, which is document everything about the entire internet and web technology on video. It's like, no, 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 no. Like, we would need television studios on top of television studios to do that. <laughs> what we're trying to do is really help with the most pressing problems right now, like what's really frustrating right now or what new things shipped in browsers. Not that we're covering everything new. That's much better done in text. That's much better done in like what's new in Firefox, whatever, what's new in Chrome, whatever, like press releasey kind of blog posts, but the kind of like, Oh, everything's about to change about underlying styling. I as a front end developer or as a web designer want to like, know what's going on with underline styling, but I don't really have time to read the specs or to read 14 blog posts or to dig into all these web docs. Can somebody just take eight minutes and explain it to me so I get the higher level understanding of what's changed about underline styling? Cool. Okay. Here's a video that does that. And then once you kind of get that big picture understanding in your head, later you can go look up web docs or later you can, you know, go to other research resources to like find details and stuff. Um, uh, didn't you just put up a video about like a, the variable fonts inspector, right? In, in Firefox that is like killer. Um, thanks. Yeah. <laughs> but like, you know, I, th- I think, you know, people probably aren't even on the variable fonts train, right? but then you like see this and you're like, Oh, there's like this browser has like sliders that just like make it really easy to understand what's going on. Like that's amazing. Cause yeah. You know, usually it's like, oh, you want to set slant to either zero or one or 4,000. Uh, <laughs> that's how you make a an italic, you know? And so like this, I don't know, that tool is almost 
I think going to be indispensable for like a uh, variable font workflows, you know, in, in the coming future. So, yeah, we shipped a completely new font editor in the Firefox release when we shipped variable fonts, which I think was last fall, like a year ago. Mm-hmm. And variable fonts are still new and people don't really know about them. And Somehow I think people didn't really – some people were super excited about the font editor, but I think a lot of people just didn't know that it's there. Um, mm-hmm. you, you know, who? I guess we don't really spend a lot of time sort of clicking on random buttons inside DevTools to see what might be new. Um, so that's part of the videos. There's sort of one of the series. There's several series, and one of the series is kind of like, hey, let's show you the most useful developer tools in Firefox that you might not know about. Um, let's give you a tour of the grid inspector. Or let's show you the font editor with the variable font tools. Let's show you. It's funny because I made one of the first ones I did was about the screenshot tool, and I've never really used the screenshot tool in Firefox and suddenly everyone on my team was everyone on the video team was like oh this is the most useful thing ever and we're all using the heck out of it it's so funny <laughs> <laughs> it's funny how much you learn while you're getting ready to teach something you know and oh if you're making videos sometimes you have to put screenshots of websites and videos like yeah now you have a really easy way to do it anyway I had to obsess about this revert thing for a minute, and I think I get it now. Is that that unset would remove even the user agent styles, yeah. but revert yeah. leaves the user agent styles. Oh, yeah. okay, that's awesome. Got it. Revert cool. goes back to the default that the user agent style sheet is using for that right. particular element that you have, where the other ones are like, what is the inherent original thing that this property yeah. wants to be completely independent from elements in the specification. Incredibly useful. Very glad that that exists. So I have another question about the, this type of thing now, because I've been in a couple of, just recently, a couple of like, not arguments, but like big long discussions about browsers and like what they're kind of like allowed to ship and what's responsible to ship and in, in, in things like that. So if the marketing behind revert is like Firefox ships revert, the first thing a developer might think is like, okay. Is it in Chrome? That's Well, is it in Chrome? But like, is it spec'd? Like, is it, did they, did Firefox uh, just go rogue and just invent some new property to ship? Or, Firefox never Mo's does that. Revert. So don't, I would, I would think so. Don't <laughs> assume that that's happening. But it's kind of like, who else has this? What's spe- like, what's the most responsible way to ship something like that? And in this case, I'm looking around and it looks like, well, it's a part of the CSS Cade spec, which is candidate recommendation. So it's just, I guess it's kind of is, although this says it's, I, I don't know. Can we talk about that for a minute? Yes. Let's talk about that. You're like hot topics. You just go straight for the jugular. Um, that's a, that's a really good question. And I think that that's one of the things that I've, that I have had a chance to kind of learn a lot about and get a lot of insight into being at a browser maker when I never did as a, as a web developer, that the, that all of the different companies that make browsers are, are run by people. (laughs) And those people have different opinions about the answer to that question. And these, those companies kind of each company has its own culture around that. And Mm -hmm. The, the answer is the correct way, the way that the web standards culture, the way that like the way it's supposed to work is that 
whatever new technology, new ideas that people have about what they want to put into browsers should get written in the specification. It should go into the JavaScript specification or the HTML specification or the CSS specification or into one of the other many, many, many other kind of API specifications that exist. Some of them are W3C. Some of them are Wetwig. Some of them are... What if it's just an um, idea, though? Like, still, that's, like, put it in... Well, the idea... It's fine if a browser maker wants to kind of behind the scenes using behind, like behind a flag mm-hmm. iterate on a few ideas just like just sure. drop some code in their browser and test out some sort of idea that's totally fine that feels but, right to me too because it will never users don't mess with flags ever right, ever so right. it, unlike a vendor prefix which right. developers use and then oh, oh which didn't like, work that was terrible not very terrible so in a sense i don't care what you do behind a flag do whatever you want literally anything but the idea with that, I mean, you know, browser, the, each browser team needs to have a conversation about that, though, because they don't want to throw a whole bunch of code that's sort of hanging out behind the scenes in their piece of software. Like anyone who builds software, you don't want to have a lot of extra code that's not doing anything, cluttering up the downloads and stuff like you're sitting around for years that nobody knows anything about. Right. So, so there is a way in which, like, if you're going to do some experiments, your own team needs to figure out, like, when is that okay and when should they come out if they fail or whatever. But okay. the idea is that you shouldn't ever, ever ship something in a browser, actually ship it without the flag, unless it's been specified, unless there's gone mm-hmm. through a specification process. And that specification process is not one browser maker dropping off some document and being like, hey, we wrote a spec, bye, bye. Uh, we're shipping it tomorrow. See ya. Like yeah. there, there's supposed to be a process where multiple uh, browser makers get together and discuss it. And then this company says, hey, this is really important to us. These are our values. We've expressed these values in the spec. We definitely want to ship this. And another browser maker can come along and say, that's actually opposite of our values. And we're never going to ship that. And we're not okay with that. We need to talk about this. And that those two browser makers, three browser makers, five browser makers will get together. People who actually aren't browser makers, but are companies that matter and are part of these working groups can discuss it and say, okay, let's come to a compromise. Let's come up with an agreement. Let's figure out something that actually works for everybody. So every company has what they need or what they want to provide to the world, but that we, what we've worked it out. And then companies can start shipping. Then companies, once that we've agreed and inspect, will start to ship stuff. So things are not supposed to be shipped until they've been spec'd and things are not really, like they're not supposed to just be an early draft of a spec. It's supposed to be like a well-discussed, agreed-on spec. And I would have to say, you know, the CSS Working Group, and I've been a member of the CSS Working Group for, I don't know, maybe around three years now. This totally happens. This is exactly how the CSS working group runs. And you'll see Apple show up and say, we object, or Microsoft or Mozilla or Google show up and say, we object to this. We have a problem with this. And it basically, that means we're vetoing the other browser's ability to implement and ship the idea that they have. They can't do it. We agree. We disagree. We don't agree. It doesn't happen very often. It's kind of rare to be that strong to like throw down a veto. What usually happens is there's a refinement process. And and I know that sometimes people get, they're like, they say trashy things about the working groups and how horrible it is and how awful the experience is. My experience in the CSS working group has not been that it's horrible at all. People are actually really kind to each other. It's a really healthy conversation. And the specs end up better. The specs mm-hmm. end up better. They just do. Even though all of us, including myself, sometimes are like, can we just go faster? It's like, this is hard. I don't like talking to other humans. Um 
The truth is that, okay, we spent a year talking about that, and wow, it's so much better than it would have been if we had just shipped the very first idea. Even on a really small scale, I find that to be true. Like, at my own company, if somebody just goes and writes some code and ships it, they might it might be good, but it's almost always, if not definitely always, always better if we all talk about it and multiple people see it and, and bring their own experience to it. And it's just, I can see that play out over and over. Isn't there levels of specs? I mean, I know that there is, right? And the final level being candidate recommendation. And it's, I have something it's stuck in my head where a spec can never reach that level unless there are implementations of it in browsers already. So if there's ma- massive disagreement, the spec can never get to that level, right? Like right. A candidate recommendation isn't the highest level. That's sort of the most um, like, hey, we really, it's a candidate for recommendation. Like we think that oh. this is pretty close. We think that this is pretty much done. You should definitely start implementing now. Now's a good time to implement browsers. Um, but it has to go, I think it's, oh, I forget. I have to look this up. Like, it goes from candidate recommendation to proposed recommendation, PR. And proposed recommendation means that it has been implemented already. And we definitely think that this, like, it's super pretty much done. But then okay. there's even one more level after that, which is an official recommendation. Official um, recommendation. Okay. It's just called recommendation. Um, and before candidate recommendation is working draft. So it goes from working draft to candidate recommendation to proposed recommendation to recommendation. And this is the W3C process. And the CSS working group is part of the W3C, and a lot of the other groups are, but a lot of the work is not part of the CSS work. I mean, uh, a lot of the other uh, working groups are not part of the W3C. They're they're part of uh, uh, the TC39 working group and the or the whatever the group the th- the JavaScript one, whatever. <laughs> yeah. And then HTML is not part of the CSS. It's not part of the W3C anymore. It's it's the WhatWig working group or whatever. Mm-hmm. It's not a working group of the, the. I forget. I should know this better. It's complicated. But, uh, in other words, it's so but, complicated. It's yeah. so complicated. It's so crazy complicated. Um. This episode is brought to you by Backlog. Backlog is the all-in-one project and code management tool development teams have been waiting for. With project management, bug tracking, wikis, and Git rolled into one easy-to-use platform, Backlog provides the powerful features development teams need under a clean UI that anyone can use. Easily onboard your whole team and start working on tasks in minutes. Additional features like Gantt and burndown charts make it easy to manage projects. Mobile apps keep your team connected, and their simple pricing scales with you, so you can stop worrying about per-user charges. You can build your next project with Backlog. Get a 30-day obligation-free trial at backlog.com slash shop talk or follow the link in your show notes or your podcast player right now. Our thanks to Backlog for sponsoring this episode. Keep all your projects organized with Backlog. Well, that's cool. So, but speaking, if we like tie it all the way back to revert, it's like, okay, uh, not... Not that many browsers have this now, but it looks like Safari does, weirdly enough, and Firefox does, and Chrome doesn't. So whatever, but anybody's free to 
do this because the spec is so is in this kind of later stage of acceptability. So like it's now it's just a race in a way. Like if Chrome doesn't have it, well, too bad. The spec is already agreed upon here. We're not going rogue. The spec is done. So we're implementing something that's already in the spec. So if you don't have it, well, then just catch up, you know. And in in this case, we're pointing at Chrome doing that, but you know, it's just as often or more often that, you know, it's Chrome shipping some crap and pointing at Firefox for not having it, right? It's it's kind of a, it's a back and forth kind of thing. Yeah, and, um, you know, the, the idea is that each spec would definitely be at a certain level. So, like, for instance, yesterday we had a CSS working group meeting. We uh, resolved on one, the last open issue for subgrid and immediately Elika said, "Okay, well, we just resolved on the last issue for subgrid. Why don't we, why don't we move in the next week or two to take the grid level two spec, which is the part of this that's that's where subgrid lives, grid level two. Right now, I think that's its working draft, and we're going to take it to candidate recommendation. Um, Firefox is has already implemented it. It's behind a flag in well, it's in nightly. It, it's working in nightly. I think it might even be in beta. We're thinking about shipping it. We're trying to figure out the timing of when exactly to ship it. We're testing it. We're making sure that there's no problems with it. Um, and so the fact that the CSS working group is going to take that spec to candidate recommendation right as we're about to ship is like a really good part of the process. There are no open issues. It's the spec is pretty much done. Um, mm-hmm. we're implementing it. We're hoping that other browser makers will implement it. It doesn't always, it's not always that nice and night, neat and tidy. There are times when people have implemented stuff that's in working draft. There's stuff, there's times when things lounge around and stay in working draft, draft longer than maybe they should, or, you know, it, and that's why really the best thing is for people who are involved with implementing CSS and are on the CSS working group to just always be talking to each other, to always just be communicating, right? To always be like, yeah, we have this process, but the process isn't perfect. And so it's not about automating this process. It's about communicating and using this process to help us to talk to each other. So our engineer, Matt, is implementing Subgrid. He had questions about how to do it. Rather than Matt's just going off and making up stuff by himself and being like, well, I think it should be like this. That's how I'm going to do it. I'm not going to talk to anybody. I'm just going to do it and ship it. That's how the CSS working, that's how CSS used to get implemented in the days of CSS2 is like each company would just kind of do their own interpretation of the spec. And it turns out that didn't really work. That's why we had all those bugs in IE6 and stuff. So now nobody, it's, it's, that's, that's considered very, very bad. Like if the people who are implementing stuff in a browser, when they get a little stuck or a little confused, or they're like, I don't know what this means, then they're supposed to go back to the working group and be like, hey, I don't know what this means. You all need to like work this out. And then there's a conversation. Everybody has a chance to talk about it. And Microsoft, for instance, yesterday, I don't know that they've started working on subgrid yet, but their engineers very much wanted to have a say in the decision that was made so that when it's time for them to implement, what they're implementing is what they want to implement, right? So we had a little conversation about that and it's good. It it works well. The problem is that I think there are some folks at some browser makers, maybe especially not working on CSS, but working on JavaScript or other things that don't really understand this process. And they're sort of really impatient and they really just want to get a promotion. And the best way for them, they think to get a promotion is to like write a spec and land it in the browser. And they just want to do it really fast and they don't want to talk to anybody and they don't want to go to meetings. And they don't, or maybe some working groups don't even have meetings on phone, phone calls or in person. They just do everything on GitHub issues and, and they just like, they don't want to talk to people. They just want to do it. And and sometimes there are situations where browsers are are just shipping stuff way too quickly and it's not necessarily very good and they're not talking to everybody else and it's frustrating. It's really, really frustrating. Um, 
It's one of the things that at Mozilla, like one of the values that Mozilla really brings to the table is this desire to make sure that things are are being specified properly and that there really is a healthy conversation around everything and, and no one is rushing to ship because of some massive team at their company who wants something for their particular web property that that company is running or something. Mm-hmm. Um, is it, so the worst possible thing that anybody in this player could do would be to do the thing where you just invent this thing that you want and you literally just ship it. No flag, nothing, nothing. Like, yeah. isn't that like the Dave element? I believe is what we're all talking. About. <laughs> the Dave element. It's a picture of my face. Yeah, that shows up in every. Like if some browser did that, yeah. it would be great for Dave and bad for the world. Yep, my brand. Yep. Well, and that browser might be like, ooh, this is the Dave browser. Dave browsers are cool. This browser is yeah. cool. Why are the other, other browsers being so lame? They don't have the Dave. Oh, element. they probably would do that. They would market it as a competitive a advantage for themselves. In your compat chart. And welcome to Netscape 3 Internet Explorer 3 days. Like, that's how we started. We did that once already. It worked out really badly. Well, as time goes on, though, people are going to forget about that, right? And it's going to, in business wise, it's going to start to feel like it makes more and more sense to do things independently for competitive advantage. And I just, it's a miracle to me that it hasn't happened yet. And it's, it almost seems like there's needs to be some kind of, you know, you know, who watches the watchman or whatever kind of situation here. And it's so I'll far, so good. <laughs> I'll sign me up. Sure. I just think I'm, it's cool. That judge it, and arbiter. Yeah. <laughs> I like, don't, I don't stay up at night thinking about it, but it, it just seems to me like it's going to happen. Like at some point there's going to be some some throats cut here or whatever. You know what I mean? Like bad badness will return to. to yeah, this. It, it is already happening. Um, and I think it happens more on the JavaScript side than anywhere else, but um, that's just a hand wavy. I'm not sure. Sure. But uh, you know, people are like, we want the web to be as powerful as native. We need to hurry up and make the web better. We don't have time for all this like talking, talking. We just need to hurry up. Uh, the thing, the thing that's different, cause you're right, Chris, we all, anyone who works on an engineering team kind of has this dynamic already happening. But the thing about a small team, or I guess I should say a smaller team, you know, these thousand people teams, but the smaller teams where you're building your own website or whatever, like you can, you can always delete all your code later. You can always say, oh, this thing I shipped quickly for my project, that was a bad idea. Let's obliterate it and redo it better later. But with the web, there's two things. One, we don't get to change it and ship it again later, almost ever, right? So if we hurry up and we ship subgrid and subgrid is crappy, there's no like fixing it. We're stuck with it, right? So we talked about subgrid extensively to make sure it wasn't crappy. And the other thing is that we're not solving for one website. We're not solving for facebook.com or youtube.com or codepen.io or for whatever. Like we're solving for the entire web and every use case ever all at the same time (laughs) and that's really Mm. hard yes i can imagine yeah so there are folks who i think in there is a younger generation of folks who are coming along now who weren't around when ie4 and netscape 4 were so completely different from each other that you had to literally build two websites or they don't remember why ie6 was actually really really good browser because it finally like the beginning of the web standards movement this newer younger generation just wasn't there so like how do we hand down the lessons that we learned then how do we teach people that like i know it can be a pain in the ass to like talk to humans but 
there's actually really good reasons to do that. And if we want the web to be awesome in 10 years and 20 years, 50 years, like this is what it means to be responsible stewards of the keepers of the people who make web technology. Mm -hmm. um, Such big, that's a just, oh, that's a heavy burden, heavy burden to bear there. Yeah. I, I mean, the CSS working group to me in a way is kind of like a miracle. It's like, it's this crazy, holy ground where this miracle happens of this. And some of it is born of friction. Some of it is born of disagreement. Um, mm -hmm. And that I don't think is necessarily a bad thing. Yeah. I guess, I guess the criticism there would be like, like, CSS, the C in CSS stands for compromise, I guess. <laughs> is that, <laughs> is that like maybe true? Like, is it, you know, is it watered down because like everybody in, you know, like quite literally everybody on the internet can hop into the forum and like whatever, holler off, you know, like, uh, is it compromised and, you know, or, or watered down? You know, I don't think so. I think it actually, is just way better, better, better. Um, at least the version of the CSS working group that has is the modern era, the last five years, the way that things have been running and the, what I've seen, it works really well. So, oh, you want to do whatever, like vertical text, or I don't know, you want to do subgrid and you think, oh, this is going to be uh, underlines. There's a good example. We want to do underlines. Like, let's just do underlines. Hurry up. Let's just style underlines. It's like, well, we, yeah, but what about these languages that are typeset vertically? What is the typography in Japan? What is it? What's needed for this kind of script that's completely different than the Latin alphabet? And there's a mm -hmm. long conversation about that. And then, wow, we're shipping something that actually works for all the languages and all the scripts around the world. Or it almost does. And there's a few pieces missing, but we're dedicated to going ahead and like finishing those pieces as soon as we can. That's another difference um, between what you're doing and what an individual website has to do. Because if yeah. there's too much edge case talking at a web app, you're like, oh my God, we're not doing anything. Everybody's just talking about these little problems we may or may not have, but you have to do that because you really do speak for the entire internet and make decisions that are the entire internet. I, I often find that distracting when a blog or, you know, discussions are had about what technology should be picked or something or what's good or bad for the world. And, and they talk about it in such broad terms that they're trying to apply it to every website under the sun. And it's like, I don't think that that's necessary or appropriate because you're really just talking about one website and how that yeah. gets implemented. But it's exactly the opposite again in your shoes or in the CSS working group shoes or in browser shoes when they you really do need to think about every single website in the world. Yeah. Yeah. The, uh, I mean, I think like a, a very recent example, probably near and dear to your heart, Jen, would be like Grid. You know, the the first one showed up in Microsoft, the or Internet Explorer, sorry. Yeah. And it was like the MS Grid, and you know, this was kind of them doing it themselves in a, in a way. But I know that because they're trying to hit some like Windows eighty objectives or something or MSN dot com objectives, but like. They, you know, it, it was good, but also incomplete, right? It didn't have everything it needed to actually do a whole layout. And so it got, you know, that was behind a prefix, but like, then it got hammered out and is now great. So yeah, uh, maybe yeah. you know that whole story. But Well, and Bert Boss had this earlier version and this earlier idea of how layout might happen into, and he wrote it up as a spec that 
ended up being called the template layout spec. And then Microsoft, yeah, like you said, they came along around the Windows 10 era. I think it was sort of inspired by Metro, the Windows Metro UI, and and trying to fulfill needs inside Windows, inside Microsoft to like support that kind of operating system design with something in CSS. I don't know the details, but my sense is that those two things were probably connected. And mm-hmm. uh and meanwhile, you know, in previous iterations, Mozilla had some ideas about how layout should happen. And we created this thing called Zool. And that sort of ended up becoming what we have in Flexbox. And so in a way, it was sort of these competing ideas of what layout should be. And all of them, like, were coming after the original ideas around absolute positioning and stuff, which turned out to not work at all. They were sort of a train wreck. And like, so it was years and years and years of all these different ideas and all these different competing conversations. And I think earlier in the sort of the template layout, Burt Boss, Huckam Lee eras, I don't know that those conversations were were going very well like i i think that there was some some tension that ended up with like well then we just won't do anything then right like <laughs> and it was well, only there, after was a a, tense time for browsers too there's yeah. so many power plays yeah. like literally people comp- corporations trying to own the internet like yeah in for all intents and purposes. And there was an incredible amount of technical debt that had to be paid down because there wasn't good specifications in the era of CSS1 and CSS2. And there wasn't a lot of what we call interoperability, like different browsers and would interpret CSS in completely different ways. Like the box model was interpreted completely different by different browsers. So it took years and years to like solve all of that. The working group spent a lot of time sort of paying off all that technical debt. And then once that happened, they were able to come in and focus on layout. And yeah, Microsoft took the first stab and they was it was behind a prefix, although today they would be doing that same kind of work behind a flag. Um, mm-hmm. It helps to have an implementation. So it's not a theoretical conversation. You actually have a running implementation as an experiment. You can play with it and look at it and say, does this work? And then there was a long conversation and it took about five years to figure out, you know, well, what if we took these ideas from Bert's thing and we molded, morphed them together with these ideas from Windows, Mm -hmm. this new Microsoft thing. And they mashed those two ideas together and wrote the real grid spec. um, And that got implemented in all those browsers and shipped in March of 2017. Uh, I think that that's a real success story. I think some people look at it as a real failure somehow that because it took five years, but I think... You know, I don't know, maybe it could have taken four years instead of five, but. But I think that's a good example of like, it got implemented half feed good, you know, but if like, then it got fixed through the, the standards process yeah. and, and got better. Um, I did have a zinger for you while we're talking <laughs> about grid, if you can. Uh, yeah. What do you, what are your thoughts on the grid shorthand? Use it or lose it? I don't use the grid shorthand much because I yes, can't remember. That was my answer. I can't remember it. I like just writing the long. I just write the long stuff. Isn't there? But there's like 20 properties involved. Shorthand for which one? Any of them? I actually don't use named areas much. I use I actually use numbers too because I don't use named areas or named lines much. But also, I'm not writing production code for a big team. I'm not making a design system. I'm teaching tutorials. So I'm nope. I'm, I'm telling my team right now. Jen doesn't use the grid shorthand. <laughs> so I just problem solved. Done. Resolved. <laughs> Mark has resolved. Won't fixed. Closed. None. Yeah. This episode is sponsored by Datadog Synthetics. You can get a user's eye view of your front end services with Datadog Synthetics. Automatically test your application endpoints with simulated traffic from global locations, which allows your team to proactively identify and improve issues before they affect your customers. 
Plus, you can build multi-step browser tests simply by interacting with your application. Datadog will do this really cool thing where it'll record your actions and automatically execute the tests, intelligently adapt to changes in your UI along the way. You can build your first test today with a free trial of Datadog Synthetics and receive a complimentary t-shirt. With Datadog, you'll be able to proactively monitor site availability and uptime, monitor critical business transactions and user journeys across your app, and create tests in minutes with their web recorder. Datadog will help you save time with AI-driven self-maintaining tests, so you can stay focused on building new features, not fixing brittle tests. And Datadog will reduce mean time to resolution with full stack visibility. You can accelerate development with end-to-end context in a single platform and break down your silos. So follow the link in the show notes or in your podcast player right now and sign up for a free trial of Datadog Synthetics and get yourself a free t-shirt in the process. Our thanks to Datadog Synthetics for sponsoring this episode. Here's a, like, I have a CSS-ism where any, any value that ends up having a slash in it, I just abort. I'm like, oh, I can't, I don't, <laughs> anything. Not, <laughs> not, grid is almost an exception. And then if you go grid column, like one slash three, I kind of yeah. get it. But I like, sometimes there's multiple slashes and, and like border radius can have a, anytime border radius has a slash, I'm like, I'm out. <laughs> it's funny because I, I've known more about CSS than I've ever known in my entire life. Like I understand it so much deep, more deeply. I'm almost embarrassed that I used to say that I know it because because I didn't. But also, I am more aware of what I don't know at this point than I have ever been in my whole life. There's so much stuff I don't know. I'm constantly, quickly looking things up because I have no idea. Uh, yeah, there's a lot to know. It's kind of an amazing language. I think I think it's designed in such a way that people can use it in many different. Like there are many different corrects. There are many different ways to write it. And if the shorthands are helpful for somebody, then cool. And if they're not, then okay. Well, I think it's nice. It's, I mean, it's that thing like animation shorthand is pretty darn helpful because I hate typing out all those properties. I use that one all the time or uh, transition shorthand, you know, but background, I think Harry, uh, I almost said Harry Styles. That's not CSS wizardry. Harry, oh, why am I blanking on Harry's last name? Anyway, Harry Roberts. From, uh, Roberts, there it is. He was saying he's kind of backed away from like background shorthand because you know too often you're like I want to update the background color, but then or image and then everything messes up. So um, the classic one there is it makes repeat repeat. Like why was repeats the default for whatever reason? Which almost nobody ever wants. Oh yeah, yeah. The thing about using a shorthand, anytime you use a shorthand, is you might intend to only change the things that you say in the shorthand and let the other properties for that overall thing be whatever they were in the long hands that you wrote above it and higher up in the cascade. But, but the thing is that when you use a shorthand, you're going to, you frequently end up resetting a lot of stuff that you didn't mean to reset. Um, So you, you kind of have to end up saying all the things in a shorthand or you end up with unintended consequences. Uh, and sometimes that's good, and sometimes it's not. In background, yeah. it's bad. In Flexbox, it's good. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Although, just know what you're doing is the real answer, unfortunately. Uh, Flex 001, 50% Niner. Uh, <laughs> yeah, but that's good. That's the, there, oh, there's other things happening there that you want to happen. Anyway, that's a that's a deep dive. There was one thing I want to make sure that we touch on while Jen's here because this influences the web in a very positive direction. 
which is this um, aspect ratio of images thing. And now the first time I heard about it from Jen, it was like, look, there's going to be this aspect ratio property in CSS. In fact, I think there still yeah. might be or whatever. Yes. And yep. perhaps, the, the and this is still a way that you can think about it. I think the mental model of this remains, whether what, what under the hood happens might be different. It kind of doesn't matter. Like, imagine you, actually, you know what, can you do it? I'm tempted to do it, but I think you're going to have a better a better explanation than I will. Yeah. So I'll also tell a little bit of story of what happened. So one of, there are many problems that we're still, like, front-end developers have, problems that, like, there's no solution. And one of them is you put a YouTube or a Vimeo or some other kind of video on a website page, and it's not actually a video element, it's an iframe, Right. And you want to put a width 100% of it on it, or you have something else similar. You want to put a width 100% on it, and you want it to maintain its aspect ratio, and it doesn't. So you got to go get yourself a little JavaScript framework, or you got a little JavaScript plugin, or you got to go get yourself like a padding hack trick thing. Which <laughs> we is know annoying. all too all well too, here. All too right? familiar. Yeah. Yes. Because to me, anytime there's like a hack that we all teach each other, that's a that should become a, a real thing in CSS. That's a cow path. Like, mm-hmm. Yes, right. pave that cow path. Yeah. So... I we were I was like let's let's add an aspect ratio to CSS let's add it as a, well add a property it, aspect at this point after discussing it for a while I think right now the current proposal is you put aspect dash ratio colon and then you put the thing like sixteen slash nine sorry there's a slash. Well, in this case, it's it's like not a slash is part of the value. It's like a it's like, like a, a fraction. It's a fraction. It's a fraction. The whole yeah. thing is yeah. the value. Yeah. And I think we actually are going to allow um, numbers too. So you could say 1.77 if you wanted to instead. Um, we're debating a little bit of that still, but I think it's mostly done. So you could say aspect ratio colon 1.77777777, or you could say aspect ratio 16 slash 9. Um, and what that would do is it would it would give a – element that doesn't have an intrinsic aspect ratio already, it would give it an extrinsic aspect ratio. Or if you did have an intrinsic aspect ratio on an element, it would override it and give it a new extrinsic aspect ratio. And what that would mean is you could say with 100% height auto, you'd have to say height auto. So you'd say height auto, and then you'd say aspect ratio 16.9, and it would be like, okay, well, I'll calculate the width, and then I'll like times that times, or divide it by 1.77, and it gets you the height. Um, cool. And in the midst of creating that, that doesn't that doesn't exist in any browser yet. Although I know that we're putting it on the roadmap to implement it in Firefox pretty soon, um, hopefully over the winter. Um, but along the way, while we were talking about this and discussing it, I was talking to Elika and talking to Emilio and talking to other really super smart people in the working group who actually understand how the rendering engine works, which I'm not. I don't. Uh, understand that, but they understand how the rendering engine works. They write C++ for a living to make the rendering engine exist. Um, We got into it and we were like, hey, you know, can't we just sort of take this? And I said, can't we just jam this in the user agent style sheet and have it be like aspect ratio, take the width attribute and put it over the height attribute so that you could just grab the attribute information out of the HTML and use it on the first paint to calculate the layout of the page to get rid of this problem that's like the jank problem, which we can explain in a second for folks who maybe don't know who that is, what that is. Um, and, and that conversation went on and what Emilio and folks at Mozilla were like, oh, you know what? We don't even need the CSS part of it. We wouldn't put it in the UA style sheet. We're just going to go ahead and do this in the in the straight in the browser. Like we're just going to straight engine. in the browser yeah. in the layout engine before the CSS happens. If I write uh width 400 height 300, I get a four by three box. 
But you would anyway. Right. So this is the this is the problem. So let's say you have an image that is with the hundred for four hundred pixels and height three hundred pixels, and you it's nineteen ninety seven, and you put this image <laughs> on the web page, and so that's what we did in nineteen ninety seven. Is you put the URL, you put image, and then you put the URL, and you put the width and the height attributes. And the reason you did that is because modems, slow internet. And it meant that the moment the HTML was read, before the image was downloaded, the browser would know to carve a hole that was 300 pixels tall and 400 pixels wide, and it would slowly load the image into that space. Awesome. Perfect for performance. And then... I love it. I'm going to see Chasing Amy later. This is... And everyone knew, well, not everybody, but like that was the best practice that we would teach each other is like always include height and width. It helps with performance. You definitely want your height and width attributes. And, and that remember was true. that you, no, no other resources need to load to know that information. Yeah. It's in the HTML. It's in the HTML. So maybe the image starts loading right away. Maybe there's some sort of weird delay and the image doesn't start loading. Whatever that delay is, it doesn't matter because the data is known from the HTML. The data doesn't come out of the image file itself. But switch to 2010, we start putting with 100% in CSS on those images. And if the image gets resized so that it's wider than 400 pixels, like let's say it's going to be 800 pixels, then we can quickly do the math and say, well, if the width of the image is supposed to be 800 pixels, then the height should be 600 pixels. But the browser didn't have any way to do that calculation. The browser was like, I don't know how big this image is. I think I will wait until the image loads. Meanwhile, I'm going to assume that it's zero pixels tall. Zero. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. Zero pixels tall. So it actually. Yeah, everyone's zero by zero. Yeah. Image. No, yeah, I think. Everyone loves it. I think, and I could be wrong, but I think it would actually calculate the width correctly. So it would make a box that was 800 pixels wide and zero pixels tall. And the mm. problem with that is then. The very first paint of the page, let's say, especially if you have a whole bunch of images, like all the images are zero pixels tall and all the text gets rendered and you start reading that article and the user starts reading the article and maybe they even scroll and they read part of the article and then the images load and the browser sees how big the images are and it grabs that math and it's, it recalculates and repaints the page. And it's like, oh, we need to put 600 pixels here. Let me scoot that text down. This has probably happened to all of us where you're reading an article and literally as you're reading it, it's jumping up and down and you have to like keep moving the scroll. Yeah, that's like... the jank thing that you're describing. And the irony is that you'd think, oh, us three, we're some genius front-end developers. We'll solve this with some kind of, just some kind of genius way to get around it. In truth, there actually is a really weird way around it, but uh. it's n nobody does it. I don't do it. It's not. It's the. I think the only way you do it is that weird padding bottom trick. No, ain't nobody wrapping their arbitrarily sized images in arbitrarily padding padding bottom. We just it, we just admit to our admit defeat. Like this is just a janky part of of the web, and there's no way to solve it in a responsive column. Along comes Jen Simmons and you're all <laughs> in this user agent style sheet idea with this automatically calculated ratio. And it really is the answer. There was a what's called a, a YCG group, a, a web interest community group, something I forget what that stands for. But like a like the responsive images community group that got together and, and discussed responsive images mm -hmm. and the picture element and all that stuff for a long time. 
sort of a spin-off of that work was another YCG group. So this is a sort of outside the specification process, but it's like it's like the place for anyone, any community member could go and start working on a spec and propose ideas for a spec, even if they're not members of the spec groups or they're not official, they don't work for browsers or whatever. Um, YCG is like a cool place that anybody can contribute to the ideas that might become a specification later. And so there was a group of people who were like, hey, let's solve this jank problem. And they wanted to invent a new uh, attribute. Like they were debating to like add this attribute called aspect ratio and it would have this syntax of like 16x9 or like that you would add aspect ratio data to every single one of your images. And I was just like, I don't want to add new data. Like I don't, why should we invent something new? What we should do is we should take the width and the height and we should put them back. We should make sure that they're on our um our images again, just like it's 1997, use the thing. And I think that I got that. I think that that's a feeling that I have from inside the CSS working group, where sometimes things that exist already in CSS aren't necessarily ideal, but they already exist. And so there is kind of this principle of like, sure, if we had a time machine, we would have done it better before, but we don't. So let's, since we already have such and such syntax for one property, now that we're inventing a new property, let's use the same kind of syntax because we want there to be consistency. Like we, so there's certain properties, like don't make things harder. Don't redo something different because it's technically more pure in the, in the present than it was in the past. It's better for authors if it's consistent if things are sort of the same. So to me, it's better to use width and height because that's what we've been using the entire time than to invent a new uh, attribute. And so it just kind of was like this moment of like, why don't we just do it this way? Why aren't we already taking the width and height attributes and putting them into the calculations so that even if width 100% is applied to something, that the browser goes ahead and it grabs those attributes and it uses it in the first paint. And if it turns out, this was a little bit of a debate, but this is how it landed. If it turns out that somehow the width and height attributes are wrong and the aspect ratio that gets calculated from them is different than the aspect ratio that's inherently inside the image, then it will get recalculated and it will be painted a second time. So the image itself will beat out the calculation based on the on the um, attributes. But in any case, what it means is if you put the proper width and height attributes on every single solitary image on every single website right now, responsive images or not, flexible media or not, you will get a much better experience. You'll eliminate this jank. I, I think this aligns with like the design system methodology. You know, it's like, is there something we can use that we have already? Yes. Well, that's the big deal, right? Is that it's not like, oh, we've invented some way that authors in the future can solve this problem. No, we're going to take something that miraculously already exists and just improve the loading experience for just countless sites with this with this change. I mean, what a tremendous improvement for the web. Just incredible. I love it. Thanks. Yeah, so the, so the TLDR is uh, every website should put width and height attributes on every single image. And if you've taken them off, which I think lots of people have, because for a while, like you didn't get a performance benefit. And if you had a width of like 400 pixels or six, we were, what we were using 600, you have a width of 600 pixels, and then you put a width of hundred percent, it will change the width. But then if you had a height of 400 pixels, it would, it would do width of hundred percent. Mm-hmm. And height of 400 pixels, right? And you would squish, like you would lose the aspect ratio. Right. You have to be really careful with your auto and your CSS. And so stuff. You, I, 
basically you have to have with auto on there. And I remember for a little while being like, I don't want to write with auto. I just want to write, I mean, I don't want to write height auto. I just want to write with 100%. I don't want to write two lines of CSS. I want to write one line of CSS. Oh, if I remove my width and height attributes, I only have, I can simplify my CSS. Awesome. I'm totally doing that right now. And make my HTML just a little lighter while you're doing it. I removed them because I have a system that, you know, a lot of us are, are like, don't write a ton of raw HTML. I'm sure lots of people do, but a lot of people use CMSs. They use JSX. They use stuff that craft the HTML that ends up in the DOM for them. And then because you have that abstraction in front of you, you can just very quickly say, ah, ah, just forget the width and height. They don't, they're not giving me any value anywhere. Just rip it off. So I guess what you're saying, if you've done that, revisit that abstraction and put them back if you can. I know that I can. On CSS Tricks, I removed them because I have a special image filter thing that like wraps it in a figure tag and does responsive images. And I, I, I revisited it just recently because I added loading equals lazy to them because that's like a thing that exists now in, in Chrome. So why yeah. not take advantage of free lazy loading? Just chuck that on there. At the same time, that, that same filtering that removed those width and height attributes, you better believe I'm going to put them back because it's going to have amazing performance benefits for free starting very soon, if not already, right? Yeah, yeah. So put width and height back, and you're probably going to have to add height auto or whatever. It might be width auto, but you're going to have to like... To your image reset. Yeah, to just adjust of. your CSS a little bit. Like, don't just do the oh. HTML and, and not QA your website. Like, like make sure <laughs> make sure you got height equals height auto on there so that you don't nope. screw up your image. You heard it. Jen said, just write, just <laughs> save it and chip it. The production, don't even check it. Yeah. Uh, I, how does, maybe this is too long of a conversation. So one thing I use picture for is mm. switching the aspect ratio, like, like four by three on mobile, 16 by nine on desktop or something, you know, kind of change the aspect. How can, am I, do I have a vehicle to change the, change the aspect? Good question. So first I'm going to answer the question that comes right before that, which is what about using image with source set? So not picture, not changing aspect ratios, okay. not art direction. Just you have image and you have source set. And so maybe your default image is 400 pixels, but, but 400 by 600, but you've got all these other images and yeah. all these other copies that are different resolutions. Well, when you're using image and source set, all of those variations for retina and all that stuff are the same aspect ratio. So if your original image element has width and height of 400, 600, that's going to give you a two by three aspect ratio or three by three by two aspect ratio. If all of your other images and all of your other copies are also all three by two, it's fine that the numbers aren't the same. They're supposed to be with Sarset, aren't they? Isn't that like yeah, what we asked supposed to, to do? Yeah. yeah. They're supposed to all have the same aspect ratio. So, so like... It's it's totally fine if this one's 200 by 300 and this one's like 800 by whatever that math is. Like it's 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 cool. Don't worry about the fact that the numbers aren't quite right. It's it's the ratio that matters. Yeah, but picture is different, right? Is that picture where you're going? is different. Yeah, picture is different. So you could easily have source set where like you've got this two by three photo sometimes, but other times you have a two by one photo, and other times you have a one by one photo. Sometimes it's a square. Sometimes it's a wide rectangle. Sometimes it's a a, a more narrow rectangle. Um, so we don't have that yet. So there's a debate happening right now. What are we going to do? And I think it's pretty clear, but we haven't finished with this is the specification process, right? I think what we're going to land on is we're going to put width and height attributes on source elements. Oh, wow. Sure. Yeah, that makes sense to me. I mean, just that without not participating in any nuanced conversation, I already don't hate it. <laughs> 
<laughs> I already don't hate well, it. I mean, it's a good sign. <laughs> <laughs> That's the on the the testimonial section of the, the spec. <laughs> already don't hate it. Already don't hate it. I think it makes a lot of sense because basically the source attribute, the SRC attribute on the source element, S O R. Yeah, S-O-U-R-S, there's only one of them, right? And it there's has an aspect ratio. And it gets swapped out, right? So it takes the URL for the image file and it swaps it into the URL for the image file on the image element. So why not just go ahead and take the height and width attributes out of the source element and swap them into the height and width attributes on the image element? Um, that's the proposal at, as of October 10th, 2019. Um, there was a little bit of debate. Well, maybe the height and width should go onto the picture element. And then I was talking to Elika about it yesterday. It's like, I don't think that makes, to me, that doesn't, I don't know, with picture. Uh-uh. That's why I was tweeting out yesterday. Like, who uses picture? What do you do use it for? Just to get Well, that's a fascinating little discussion, too, because it, it kind of, oh, it's one of those. What do you, what do people like? I think that's what you're trying to get feedback on. Like, what what's your mental model of how picture works? Do you assume that it's replaced, or do you assume yeah. that it's sitting there in the DOM as a wrapper? It's yeah, as like a div or whatever. It's just something around the image. Right. Or do and you my brain is exactly is split. Oh, yeah, it's exactly split between. I don't know. It's like a block level thing. It just wraps around. It's like an article or section or anything. It's just like a. It's a thing. And of course, I can style it. I'll put a border on it if I want. Maybe that's maybe that's the right place to put a border in some cases if that's my stylish. And some of me is like, don't trust it. No, 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 no. With this weird, mm, with the weird. Oh, you're right. Yeah, you're right. Because the first one is what I think too, as a purist, especially that's what I think. But the second is true. There was one particular mm. evening on the CSS oh. working group. A face-to-face meeting where like Emilio and Elika and I and I think Amalia was there and some other people we were laughing our heads off <laughs> like talk about nerdiness because we realized that the picture element the default CSS that's been assigned to the picture element is a crap pile of what and it does really weird things and it should have been better specified in the HTML working group so that we have it it would be better and I think that's one of the things we want to go back in and clean up because if you put like uh, borders on the boxes so you can actually see them. It's really strange what the picture boxes are doing. Um, so I think there's a good reason for folks who have an instinct that you can't quite t- t- trust, trust picture because because you can't. <laughs> it should have been better specified. <laughs> if I re- if I recall, it was not the most popular uh, element in the working group. Uh, <laughs> it, t- it it sort of showed up by brute force. Yeah. And I think as an HTML element, it's awesome. It's just the sort of default CSS part got a little fallen through the cracks. It would have been nice if some CSS working group people well, had yeah. been involved at some point or something. Well, I don't know. I think, yeah, in general, I, like we probably could have caught this aspect ratio if it, it would have gotten just a smidge more of attention, like, you know, back then, you know. But also, literally, this is always going to be what this is because it's a bunch of humans. So sort of Mm -hmm. pointing and saying there's something wrong here we need to destroy the process or change the process i think is really unrealistic or to say someone did something bad it's not no it's just it's just this is just how it goes so we're gonna make it better as much as we can and we're gonna keep it the same as much as we have to and and we're gonna keep moving forward you know maybe a good place to wrap this up um because i know we gotta get going but um like if there's a feature that I want and boy, does Dave Rupert have a list, but w- how do I start? Like what, what do I do to get something in a browser? I guess what would be your, your starting point? What would you recommend? Write a blog post that describes what 
use case you're trying to solve. Okay. So you're working on your website for your job or whatever, and you're like, oh my gosh, we keep running into this problem. We're doing this particular thing all the time, and there's no good technology to solve this. We need a tool that solves this. And if you want to write an idea about a solution, that's cool, but you don't even really need to do that part. Just the part that describes the problem is yeah. disproportionately impactful on the working groups. It's amazing how much a blog post like that, even if you think no one reads my blog, yeah, that's fine. Just if you're saying something, if you're describing a problem that a lot of people have, and you put that blog post out on Twitter, other people are going to be like, me too. Absolutely. I agree with It's going to get read. It's going to get attention. Somehow, miraculously, the right people in the right working groups are going to see it and they will use that to – because they probably actually already agree and probably already are thinking about that. And your use case and your description of your use case will be super helpful for convincing their bosses to let them work on it or making it a higher priority because lots of people are asking for it or clarifying the actual business use cases and the needs of everyday web designers, web developers. Um, it makes mm. a big difference. It really I'm sure does. you've seen a lot more of this than I have, but – I feel like I've seen a good amount of the the mistake that you can make here is instead of describing your problem and your workaround or your use case is to only blog about your idea, your your yeah. solution. Yeah. And then you get attached to what your solution is instead of instead of describing that problem up front. Yeah. I feel like I've seen that a lot and you're like yeah, I kind of get what you're saying here. Yeah, right. It's way less effective. It doesn't work very well for two reasons. One is probably your solution isn't very good. And if you get too attached to it, it's not going to go anywhere. It's probably you're going to like the solutions. There's going to be a bunch of ideas about solutions and they're going to all need to be thrown out in and like the 14th version is what's going to be the thing, not the first version. The other thing is that I think people underestimate how really amazing and genius the folks inside the working groups are. <laughs> and so sometimes, especially I know this about CSS, I don't really know this so much about HTML or JavaScript, but like on the CSS, I'll see people pop up and be like, I know how CSS should work. It should work like this. And those people in the working group are stupid. They don't know anything about it, what it means to be a real web developer. And I'm the one who knows what it, and, the, and actually the idea that they're articulating, the solution that they're articulating is a is very, very naive and they actually have no idea what they're talking about because they have no idea how rendering engines work and they just, mm -hmm. they're making a, they're kind of making a fool of themselves. So they're embarrassing themselves and they're insulting a bunch of people who they need to have as their friends. And it doesn't, it's not that they're, it's not that that idea still won't take off because people aren't very, people, it's, people are so used to it. They're just like, yeah, I know people say this about us. Yeah, they do. It's, they're wrong, but they, so it's, it's not that bad to do that, but it's not. You're embarrassing yourself. There's something counterintuitive about it. I kind of get where people's minds are, where they they think they're being more helpful by describing this solution and being attached yeah. to it rather than because like yeah. just just whining about your problems doesn't seem useful. So I'm glad that we're talking uh, about this on the show. Are you guys just throwing my blog under the bus? You're just throwing my whole <laughs> blog under the bus. This is I am insulted. <laughs> I mean, and feel free to kick around some solutions. Feel free to say yeah. if it maybe if I had a property that was like this and work like this, that would be super cool. Like, there's nothing wrong with that, but you don't have to go deep into what you think the solution's going to be. You don't need to try to write the spec. You don't need to try to. Here's a here's an example of the parent selector is always asked for in CSS, and mm. I feel like I don't know every couple of weeks something happens in my 
I'm writing code and I'm like, oh, that'd be useful to have that. I wish I had that. And then I forget what it is. So right now, if you ask me, like, Chris, describe a use case where you need a parent selector in CSS, I'll be like, mm, right. I can't. But I can, but I can't, you know, like, I don't know. So, so if I could capture that moment where I needed it and blog about yeah. that moment, that's yes. more useful than me just writing yet another blog post that says, I think we should have parent selectors in CSS. <laughs> And it's it's a perfect example because parent selectors have been discussed a lot and so have container queries or element queries. Yeah. And in some ways they're related because when the CSS working group starts thinking about these things or talking about them, everybody I see everybody's brains start to spin and they're like, uh, they're trying to figure out whether or not the rendering engine could ever get anywhere close to doing anything like that without just dropping into an infinite loop that would destroy performance. Right. So and it's almost like, why bother to spend four months trying to answer this question when the answer is going to be, you're dividing by zero. Like, this will never work. You can't, this is impossible. You can't do this. But eventually, probably, somebody will dive in and say, you know what? I'm going to work on this. I'm going to see if I can figure this out. And when they go to do that, if they have a little pile of very specific use cases, it will help them put their brain back on track over and over and over again as they try to figure out if the ideas they're having will get close to what's needed or not. And they don't have those use cases in their own arsenal because these people are not people who make websites for a living. They don't know what it is that you experienced, Chris, or what it is that you were needing at that moment. And if you can't even remember, like the working groups also forget these things quickly too. So having those documented really helps because when somebody actually sits down to figure out whether or not it's possible to do container queries or element queries, if they have like six or eight use cases that they can just point to, then they can figure out quickly. Because probably what will happen is they'll be like, well, we think we want everybody wants this golden, shiny unicorn, but could could I just build a golden horse? Could I just get a yellow horse? Is a yellow <laughs> horse close enough? Right. And if they have the use cases, they can be like, yeah, you know what? A yellow horse would be fine. They don't need a, a gold unicorn. Um, or they'd be like, nope. It's not about having a horse. It is about having a rhinoceros. A rhinoceros will work because I need the horn. The horn is the part that, you know, like, um, <laughs> and so those use cases are really important. Um, and that's a, that's a good thing people can do is help define those. Well, that's a fantastic place to people to stop and reflect upon. Yeah. Thank you so much, Jen. Always uh, wonderful to have you on. Uh, thank you uh, for those who aren't following you and giving you money. How can they do that? They can follow me on Twitter at Jen Simmons. Uh, they can check out labs.jensimmons.com where I've put tons of examples. They can go to youtube.com slash Mozilla developer to see our new channel. They can go to youtube.com slash layoutland to see all of my layout graphic design videos, including a bunch of coverage talks from the last couple of years. Um, and the, give me money, TBA. I think uh, there are plans in 2020 perhaps where Mozilla will be um, – uh, asking folks to help be part of a deeper experience and help fund the kinds of content that we're putting out for free right now on YouTube. Um, or also check out Firefox. There's going to be things happening in the future with Firefox and um, free subscription, like free, what's it called? Free accounts. You can make free Firefox accounts, but in the future, I think there'll be some, some extra special, amazing things that perhaps you want to uh, pay a little bit of money for. And all of that money is going to help fund Mozilla, which helps fund the work that we're able to do inside Mozilla. Awesome. 
Well, cool. Well, thank you so much. And thank you, dear listener, for downloading this and your podcatcher choice. Be sure to start heart favorite up. That's how people find out about the show. Follow us on Twitter at Shop Talk Show for tens of tweets a month. And if you hate your job, head for shoptalkshow.com slash jobs and get a brand new one because people want to hire people like you. And if you uh, just like this company. Hey, Shopamaniacs, we got a job to tell you about, a really nice job opening that I think will appeal to a lot of you. It's at a place called Nacelle. The, the URL for them is get Nacelle, get N-A-C-E-L-L-E, and they make, you know, kind of e-commerce experiences often would have to do with Shopify, but they like supercharge them, make them progressive web apps, just make them smoking fast because then you make more money, you know, but they're looking for a senior developer to work with them on their front-end e-commerce platform that is all Jamstack. So, if, you know, we talk about Jamstack all the time, kind of kind of fans of it here at Shop Talk Show. But the, the idea is to provide superior customer buying experiences. So they have a super modern stack they're working with. GraphQL, AWS Lambda, Vue, and Nuxt is like their main stuff. So they're looking for a skilled senior JavaScript developer uh, uh, you know, to come on board, be their thought leader, be their technical guru, uh, unfortunately, it's USA only, but, you know, uh, uh, you can relocate to Santa Monica, California. You're good to go. So, again, Vue.js, Vuex, Nuxt, Node, AWS. They're looking for somebody with lots of experience and into this specific stack to help them build super fast e-commerce experiences. We'll have a link right to the job posting in the show notes for this show. So go, go join them in Santa Monica at Nacelle. And Chris, you got anything else you'd like to say? Oh, just shopdocshow.com.